There was a man named David at my previous church uh, in northeastern Oklahoma. He woke up on March the 13th, 2005, feeling great. This felt like a normal day. When he went to bed that night, after becoming violently ill after dinner, he knew he had stage four pancreatic cancer. And a month to the day after he woke up feeling great, I did his funeral. David was three years younger than I am right now when he passed away. And his story always reminds me, it's possible to feel great, but in reality to be fatally ill. If you would please find Revelation chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word this morning, because today we're going to look at a church that's feeling great, but it's dying. The church is in the ancient city of Sardis. Now, the city of Sardis, while you're turning to Revelation 3, it might be helpful to know that they were in decline by this point. They had once been very prestigious and very prominent, but they were in decline. But that decline was not so far in the distant past that they were really even aware of that decline. In fact, as archaeologists have kind of undertaken studies of Sardis about this particular point in history, uh, they have discovered that the city itself its citizenry did retain some significant wealth. And there existed in this city a community of Christians, the church at Sardis, which is addressed in Revelation chapter 3. Now, we don't know much about it at this point in history, um, at least the point in history it's represented by our passage today. There's this tradition in the Eastern Orthodox Church that Clement, a companion of Paul mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, is the one that established this church. But other than that, we really don't know very much about this church outside of this passage at all. And as a matter of fact, we probably know more about this church by what is not said to it by Christ in Revelation chapter 3 than in what is actually said about it. But there are two things for us to note. First, Sardis, the church at Sardis, gets the harshest rebuke of any of the seven churches that are addressed at the beginning of the book of Revelation. It is unflinchingly honest and brutal. And second, it's the only church addressed which doesn't seem to be experiencing persecution. The churches that we have examined so far in our journey through the first few chapters of Revelation are experiencing uh, persecution from one or two places and sometimes both, either from the left in the pagan secular culture or from the right in the Jewish religious culture, one of those or both. But the church at Sardis is experiencing neither. As a matter of fact, it seems like they're fitting in quite nicely in the city of Sardis, which has caused one commentator on the book of Revelation, a man by the name of G.B. Caird, to observe this. Content with mediocrity, lacking both the enthusiasm to entertain a heresy and the depth of conviction which provokes intolerance, it was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. It wasn't worth the time even going after by the community at large. And with that in mind, let's begin walking through the verses that hold our passage today, verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 3. It begins this way, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God 
and the seven stars. Now, if you have a sharp eye, you'll note that this is almost exactly the language that was used to address the church at Ephesus, and it's for the same reason. Jesus is meaning to communicate to the church at Sardis that I'm with you. I'm not disconnected from you. I, I'm not absent from what is going on in the church. And in fact, he goes to great lengths to indicate that he holds the seven spirits of God, which is representative of the Holy Spirit, we believe, I believe is the best understanding. So the spirit that empowers the church is under his authority. And then the seven stars represent the prevailing spirit of the churches. And he says, I hold that. I have that. So the church, both what is empowering the church and what what is the church is ultimately under my authority. And as such, I know your true condition. I know really how things are going, even if you don't. And it's pretty apparent they don't. Look at the last part of verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Everybody thinks you're doing great. Church Maybe uh, in general in that region, thought the church at Sardis had it going on, the community, didn't have any bad things to say about it. You have the reputation of being alive, but he says, you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It's something like this. I know that you feel like you're doing good. You've curried the favor of pagan culture and you've curried the favor in some way of religious culture. At least they're not bothering you. And again, as I mentioned already, perhaps other churches looked in and said, man, that's a model church. They have it going on. But he says, you're actually dead. He says, there's really no life in you at all. And he goes further. He says, what little there would be to commend in you, not worth mentioning. It's about to die itself. I mean, you, there are a few things, but it's inconsequential stuff. It's not worth mentioning at all. And so Jesus says to them, wake up. Wake up. It, it's perhaps worth kind of delving into the backstory of Sardis to get the, the rhetorical point that Jesus is making with the words, wake up. You see, twice in its history, it had fallen to an enemy because it was literally caught napping. It was captured by Cyrus the Persian in 549 B.C. and by Antiochus in 218 B.C. BC. Now, how was it captured? Well, it was really a stunning thing that it was captured in the first place because Sardis sat on a hill so steep, its defenses were ensconced on a hill so steep that they were deemed to be impenetrable. In fact, I would encourage you, not now because I'm preaching, but later on today, uh, to, to go home and Google uh, Sardis, and, and, and you'll see a picture of the, the mountain that contained its fortress. You'll be impressed. And on both occasions that it was overthrown, troops, opposing troops, enemy troops, had scaled the precipice by night and found the overconfident Sardians asleep having not posted a guard. The church at Sardis, Jesus is saying, has dropped its guard, and there was almost nothing left to commend it anymore, get this, as even being a Christian church. Nothing really there to celebrate as a church at all. They had managed to blend in. They had managed to ease back. Their works, which Jesus knew, 
had met with human approval in some way, but were incomplete in his sight. And they were about to be overthrown, but not by a secular society on the left or a religious society on the right. They were about to be overthrown by Christ himself. So, what was the precise problem to which they had succumbed? The following words give us a bit of a hint. Look at verse 3. Remember then what you have received and heard. So, putting two and two together, they had forgotten what they had received and heard. Now, remember, the book of Revelation falls underneath the canon of books in the New Testament that are attributed to the Apostle John. So, it goes along with the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation all fit together attributed to one author. So, as we look at how John uses words and styles language, we can get maybe a little deeper understanding of those words, what you have received and heard. My mind, when I read those, immediately go back to how John opens up the book of 1 John. Just go back a few pages to your left. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, that which was from the beginning, John says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's saying, I am an eyewitness to the life and teaching of Christ. I've seen him with my own eyes, I've felt him with my hands, I've heard his words, even those that aren't recorded for us, with my own ears. All right, so look, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, as we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. And now we can get perhaps a little deeper hint as to the precise problem in Sardis. They had forgotten what their message was. They had forgotten that which they had received from the Apostle John, which was what? The message concerning eternal life. They had lost touch with the gospel. Something else had become central to their church. Something else had become central to their personal lives. Something else had taken over. They had lost sight of the gospel. In in fitting in and easing back, they had lost sight of the sole reason that any church exists in any community, lost sight of the sole reason that any Christian is planted in any group of people. They had taken on as their mission instead fitting in and getting along, and they didn't know it, but Jesus is saying, you've lost everything. I don't know what I'd call you anymore, but I'm not certain I'd call you church. And so he says this in the remainder of verse 3 of Revelation chapter 3. Keep it. Keep what? The gospel, the message while you're here. Keep it and repent. Repent. If you will not wake up, there's those words again, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus is saying, I will overthrow the church with such tenacity and ferocity. 
that you won't believe it when it happens and you'll never see it coming because you have fallen asleep. Asleep as the, the prophetic singer of my childhood in the late 70s, early 80s, Keith Green would say, asleep in the light. They had let everything go. Thankfully, however, there was a remnant of genuine Christian commitment left in the church. Even in a church that had lost sight of everything, there was a remnant of genuine Christian commitment. He begins to celebrate that in verse 4. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The genuine Christians in this compromising church had not defiled their garments. And it's important for us to understand here that this defilement is not a reference to something that had merely become dirty. It is a reference to filth. Not to be indelicate very early in our mornings on a Sunday, but the connotation here is that they have been covered in fecal matter. The connotation here is that this church, which Jesus could barely even call a church anymore, had painted themselves with the manure of the world to fit in. But there were a handful who were faithful, whose garments were clean, and which would be made complete, which would be made perfect. They would be clothed in white, and they would be with him, Christ, forever and ever. And so Jesus completes his message to Sardis with these words, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are historical churches. They are being written to as real places with real people and real leadership, speaking to real problems. But the way that each letter finishes reminds us that the conditions that exist in these churches, which needed uh, rebuke and, and support and encouragement, exist continually throughout Christian history. So he doesn't just say to Sardis, you all listen up. He says, let every church who ever hears these words hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the, the tendency to give up and compromise that which makes us a church in the first place is alive and well in 2020. There was a liturgical rhythm to the first church I pastored in rural Tennessee. I would finish the sermon, and then I'd blather on about announcements at the end, and I was just as bad at it then as I am right now. It's the reason I've been fired from that job, and Pastor Jonathan takes care of all that at the end. And then when all my talking was over, I had to pick out a deacon, and I'd say, Yule Hooper, and we really did. We had a real live person named Yule Hooper. I say, Yule Hooper, close us in prayer. And he'd start to pray, and I'd slip out the double doors of the side, go out the side door, outside, run around the, the outside of the church next to the azaleas, because this was in Tennessee, and every church is required to have so many azaleas per square foot. <laughs> Ran up the steps to the church, get in the foyer, get ready to shake a lot of hands. The reason that I apparently have an immune system that is bulletproof 
is because I have touched a lot of people who would go, <laughs> good sermon, preacher, you know, over and over again. I would wash to my elbows when it was over. But I get back there and get ready for that, that germ uh, party. Then there was always one of our ushers, a guy named LaVon Mitchell. I've said this to you before. But if I preached a sermon that he really liked, he'd say to me, well, preach. If they'd have been here, you'd have told them. Now, if you stop and think about what he's saying, here's what that meant. I didn't need what you had to say. But if somebody was here that needed what you had to say, they had a good day. LaVon almost always needed to hear <laughs> what I had to say. But he always thought it was for someone else. There's a group of us that study each week's passage together so that a group of us help the two of us prepare to preach each week's message. And in our meeting on this passage, we noted the ease with which we could easily succumb to the temptation to think of all the other people that need to hear this, except for us, of course. This text is about a compromising church. And the tendency for human beings who might live in one part of church life, is to look at the other part of church life and say, they better be listening. And then for those people who live in that part of church life to point back at the people on the other side of church life and say, they better be listening. And the reason we do that is that there is a self-justification mechanism embedded in each and every one of us that allows us to convince ourselves other folks need a message that we might need ourselves. So how do we get past that? That was the question we wrestled with after we'd studied the text and began to think about how does this sermon flow? Where does it go? How do we help people get by? How do we help us get by that self-justification mechanism? And we settled on a title that might help. You'll notice that the title of this message is How Am I Really Doing? Not how is the church really doing? How are the people on the other side of the building for me really doing? The name of this message is, How Am I Really Doing? Is it possible that I, like the church at Sardis, am not as healthy as I think I am? Is it possible that I feel as good as always this morning, but I'm spiritually terminal? And perhaps more importantly, how would I ever know how would I know? And how would I get any better? And the answer to both of those questions is Jesus. Because just as Jesus speaks to this church, he speaks to us today to accomplish three things to let us know how we're really doing. Number one, Jesus confronts. Jesus confronts. Jesus knows us intimately and is not held hostage by the self-delusion that lurks around in all of our hearts. He can therefore see what we can't see. And when he sees what we can't see, guess what he does? He confronts. So how does he do this? He does it in the same way that he did it for the church at Sardis. Trust me on this. Through divine revelation. Now, theologians speak of two different kinds of revelation. One kind of revelation is known as general revelation. 
And this is the idea rooted in Scripture that the Creator God has left evidence of His existence in the creation around us. This is a text which finds its firm foundation in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. That's general revelation. Special revelation is the other kind of revelation that theologians talk about. And it's the idea that God, through Scripture, has made Himself known. So to kind of help you get handles on these two kinds of revelation, general revelation tells us there is a God. Special revelation tells us who this God is. That's the difference between the two different kinds of revelation. And the record of God's special revelation, the way that we know who God is, is ultimately through his word, which points us to Christ, who is the fullest expression of who God is. So while it might have been more dramatic for the Sardians in Revelation chapter 3 than it is for us when we're simply reading the passage of Scripture or hearing it preached, is that, that Jesus confronts us in the same way. Jesus speaks, speaks through his words. So the means by which we are confronted is through regular engagement in the word of God. And part of the reason that so many of us feel like we are doing so much better than what we really are is because far too many of us have little to no engagement with the word of God or we're simply reading it like words to build our knowledge and not engaging Jesus in the word as we read the word. And I'm serious about this that latest Christian book that you were reading could actually be dulling you to Christ's confrontation of you. Just as I talk with people about their personal walk with Jesus, I'm aware that what many people call their devotions or their Bible study is simply reading a book of someone else talking about their Bible study and not us actually reading on our own and engaging the life of Christ on our own. And so what begins to happen, this is a very natural, normal human process, is we begin to read books that we like that make us feel good, I need to be encouraged here, or I need to be challenged intellectually, or doctrinally, or theologically here, or, or this book just, just makes me uh, uh, feel more worshipful, uh, and so I, I want to buy this book. Almost no one goes to Mardell's and says, which book can I buy here that'll just flat kick me in the teeth? Because we don't want that. But if you read God's Word systematically, if the reason you're reading Matthew 2 today is because you read Matthew 1 yesterday, and the reason you're going to read Matthew 3 tomorrow is because you read Matthew 2 today, then you're just taking God's Word as it comes. And you can't sidestep those moments when Jesus says, hey, look at that verse. I'm confronting you in it. You can't sidestep those things. So we must regularly, systematically read the Word of God if we're going to be people who are experiencing the confrontation, the needed confrontation of Christ that helps us know whether we're as healthy as we think we are. And then as we are confronted in the Word of God, then we are also experiencing His correction because Jesus corrects. Jesus confronts, Jesus corrects. He's not just in the rebuking Business. He's in the business of restoring, of making us what we should be. And just as Jesus did for Sardis, he'll provide an action plan for us to get healthy. First, he'll help us remember as he confronts us. And as he did with Sardis, he'll remind us of who 
and to what we have committed. Salvation for far too many of us has simply come uh, something that is summarized by the word of uh, word receiving. But salvation in scripture is actually summarized by the word surrender. We are surrendering to Jesus as our king, we are not simply receiving eternal life. That which you heard and received is that you are a rebel sinner by nature and by choice, and the solution to that problem is to surrender to Jesus as king, who then in turn provides eternal life. Then he'll call you to keep and repent, resolve to stay true to your commitment to Jesus as king and repent of any sin that he shows us in his correction. And it is this repentance that ultimately makes us stand out against the backdrop of a world in decay because it shows that our allegiance isn't to anything in this world but is ultimately to Jesus as our king. And I'm afraid that moral people think of sin as something external to themselves and not innate. In other words, we think that sin is something that we can do something about in our lives, and therefore, because we're moral people, it's in our past. We don't deal with sin anymore, and when we are dealing with sin in Scripture, we tend to think of, well, that's what sinners do. That's what sinners need to hear. I'm not a sinner, but Scripture tells us that we're going to constantly battle our, our, our fleshly nature and our sin. We will always be doing battle with sin in our lives. It is innate in us. And it can only be extracted by the grace of Jesus Christ. And in order for that grace to be activated in our lives, we've got to be willing for Jesus to confront us, to show us what we're blind to, and, be, and to correct us, help us out of that thing which we can't get out of ourselves. And after he confronts and corrects, he'll comfort. Jesus comforts. For the church at Sardis, he comforted those who had remembered kept and repented with the knowledge that he would bless them with his presence for eternity. The prize of Christianity is not eternal life. The prize of Christianity is Jesus. You get him. And we're comforted by that awesome truth. Jesus confronts, he corrects, he comforts. So how are we really doing? How are we really doing? Is it possible that we're more an amalgam of our culture, whatever that might be, than we are the likeness of Christ? There's one sure way to find out. Let Jesus confront you by reading his word. Let Jesus correct you when he confronts you in his word and then be comforted by the promise of Jesus that he gives in his word. So how do we do that? Well, if you've not already done so, let me encourage you to make a habit of daily and systematically engaging the word of God. And let me give you an easy way to do it. I think my math's right here. If you committed to read one chapter of the four books that record Christ's life for us, the Gospels, a day, for the next however many consecutive days that is, you would finish reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on January 14th. So if on just seven of those days, 
between now and the end of the year. You read two chapters instead of one. You would finish those four books about the life of Christ by the end of the year. And then you'd be ready to commit to another full year of systematic Bible reading. What might happen if you read Christ's word systematically, reflected on the life of Christ systematically? I'll guarantee you this. You'd be confronted, you'd be corrected, and if you'd repent, you'd be comforted. Keep in mind that in order for that to happen, it's more than just about reading some words and checking a box. It's actually engaging Christ in our reading, which I think far too many of us don't do. And so I would encourage you to begin each day of Bible reading between now and the end of the year by asking Jesus to show you if there's anything in your life that he needs to confront. By showing you if there's anything in your life he needs to correct. And to also ask him to show you the joy of obedience in him while you read. And I think if we did all of that, we might actually start to become as healthy as we think we are. And we wouldn't have to risk our lives being overthrown by King Jesus. Jesus loves us enough to confront, correct, and comfort. Let's let him do that in his perfect word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.